Simply Complex is brought to you by Studio 71 and the YouTube channel How to Make Everything. Have you ever gone to the store, bought some drinks that were room temperature, and when you got home you wanted to have one cold? Well, there's this trick where if you wrap it in a wet paper towel and put it in the freezer for like five minutes, you can take it out and it's reasonably cold and ready to drink. In theory, I understood why that happened. The freezer is colder than the fridge, and somehow the wet paper towel helped the drink get cold. But in today's episode, we discover the real reason why that happens. We learn about how refrigerators actually work. We talk about the ice harvesting industry, which once dominated America. And we talk to a science writer, Tom Jackson, about how refrigeration is still changing the future. In today's modern world, we are always in such a hurry. We rarely stop to think about the things that keep the gears turning. On Simply Complex, we explore the people, technologies, items, and processes that, while at one point were considered outstanding, have today become so commonplace, we take them for granted. Hey Andy, how's it going? Hey Taylor, not too bad. How are you? I'm doing well. It's good to be back. What's the longest you've ever kept something in your refrigerator? <laughs> Hard to tell. There's those things you forget about, and then years later you pull it out, and like I don't even know what this used to be. <laughs> <laughs> I just found some jelly in our fridge that was like from spring of 2017. Oh, but because it was like jelly preserves or whatever, probably still good. That's yeah. That's what I was thinking. I didn't roll the dice on it yet, but yeah. I still have jars of pickles from my sandwich that aren't even refrigerated from 2012. <laughs> but pickling is a more, like, stable process, right? If you do it right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the real, that's the real trick. Uh, this week we are talking about refrigeration. Yeah. And when I'm working at home, I always find myself going down and checking the refrigerator a lot and expecting something new to be there that never is. Yeah. I always got to check again, make sure, see if something something really nice showed up when you weren't looking. Eventually, they'll have that technology, though. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, now they're putting TVs in refrigerators, <laughs> and those old Disney movies where the you'd type in what you want, and it just appeared. Oh, it didn't yeah. even, it wasn't even in a fridge. <laughs> I think there's a movie called Smart House that I liked a lot. I just want the replicators, is that what they're called, in uh, Star Trek? So yes. Make, make it right in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> Robots, man. But speaking of robots, uh, this week we talked with a guy who wrote a book all about refrigeration and its technology and how it is possibly the greatest technological advancement of humanity. Wow. Especially like recently, even bigger than the internet, etc. Because without refrigeration, we couldn't even use the internet. Yeah, it's got to cool all those servers. Yeah. In the interview today, uh, we kind of cover a little bit of that. And then we also talk about the history of refrigeration, which I think you're doing, right? Yes. Yeah, it'll be really cool. Literally. (laughs) Cool. Yeah, it's weird to be talking about refrigeration right now and how amazing it is when it's like eight degrees outside. I was just out last night trying to grind some metal and it's just, hands got like frozen solid so quick. It was just like, oh, I could use some heat. Let's do an episode on heat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, in Minnesota, we can easily take refrigeration for granted because it is cold for so much of the year. Yeah. So you've experimented with refrigeration a little bit. We did a whole series on, like, what if you couldn't refrigerate your food? How would you preserve it? And uh, one of the ways we did was kind of the old school refrigerator, which was to literally go out in the winter and collect a bunch of ice blocks from a frozen lake, then bring them back, bring them to where you're going to refrigerate stuff, put your food in it, and keep it cool. And then uh, the ice will slowly melt and last for a really long time, depending on the size of it, and uh, keep you refrigerated for quite a while. How long did you end up running your test? I think it was about a month, and it uh, actually worked surprisingly well. It's actually a little bit cooler than most refrigerators, I think, because it's right at freezing. I was really impressed. I d- thought it did better than a regular refrigerator. I think what's really interesting is just the technology that is involved in the refrigerator itself. So let's quick learn more about its history. Yeah. Right now outside, it's almost 8 degrees Fahrenheit. Inside the box that is my apartment, thanks to central heating, it's a comfortable 72 degrees Fahrenheit. But inside that box is another smaller one that reverses this heat back to almost the same temperature as it is outside. The technology to heat is something that's been harnessed since fire was first discovered. But to cool is a revolutionary technology that's only become possible very recently, and has been a crucial technology in many different ways. But how was it done before the technology to artificially cool? Basically, by literally taking a piece of the cold winter, like what's currently outside my window, putting it away and saving it until summer, and then using it piece by piece to cool during the hot summer months. This is something I explored firsthand by cutting my own ice blocks up at the Canadian border and then used it to effectively refrigerate a collection of food for over a month. For some expertise in trying out this method of preservation myself, I traveled to the Thunderbird Lodge near International Falls to get some help from Mike, who grew up harvesting ice himself at the resort. Why, why, do, why do people do this? Well, back in the old, old days, before refrigeration, uh, it was a necessity you know, for the different resorts or lake cabins or commercial fishermen. Usually, when there was enough ice, like around the holidays, they'd get a crew together and they'd get out on the lake, they'd shovel it all off. They would score out a grid pattern on the ice and they'd have a slide going into uh, an ice house and uh, they would just take one cake of ice out at a time as they were cutting them and slide them up in the ice house and keep building it up and up and up and up until they had sufficient ice to uh, to last all summer. And of course it was done not only to uh, preserve uh, the fish, you know, for the resorts or the commercial fishermen, but also uh, groceries because, you know, nobody had electricity. This simple process has been used at least since 1780 BC in Mesopotamia but became much more widespread and commonly used in the 1800s, largely thanks to Frederick Tudor, who pioneered and eventually became rich off of international ice trade. He shipped ice from Boston to the southern U.S., the Caribbean, and even as far as a four-month trip to India. And thanks to him and other ice traders, by the 1850s, almost every American was able to enjoy luxuries and previously impossible goods like ice drinks, ice cream, and even a small ice box in their own house which were the first devices called refrigerators. As the ice trade expanded, so did industry demand for it. Meatpacking, beer production, and general produce all massively grew to become dependent on it. Northern cities, such notably as Chicago, were able to collect large supplies of ice from the abundant frozen lakes during the winter and use it during the summers to allow meatpacking to be done there locally. Ice and trains quickly became connected in ice-cooled refrigerated boxcars and Chicago transformed into a meatpacking hub, capable of getting fresh meat nearly everywhere around the country, even opening the door to the international exporting of meat. 
However, this labor-intensive cutting and storing process of the ice trade was vulnerable to innovation. As it reached its peak in the mid-1800s, artificial cooling technology started to become a major competitor, especially in regions without ample ice supplies, allowing ice to be produced locally and shipped out from there. However, it was initially expensive and unreliable. But as the technology improved, it slowly undercut and took over the ice trade industry. As technology improved even further, the home refrigerator incorporated this artificial cooling system in the early 1900s, cutting off the need for ice altogether and reversing our use of the refrigerator. Now, we sometimes still buy ice and put it in our fridge, but not to cool the fridge, but for the fridge to keep the ice cold. We'll be back with the rest of the story right after this. Refrigeration actually has a fairly recent history overall. So recent, in fact, that I was able to talk to someone who remembers when the ice trade first entered their life and when they first transitioned to a modern refrigerator. My 101-year-old grandmother, Ganora. She grew up in rural western Minnesota in a largely Norwegian immigrant town. So while having dinner with her recently, I thought I'd sit down and ask her what it was like when these new technologies first entered her life. Do you remember what your, your family first got an icebox? When I was real little. <laughs> <laughs> you know how little? Probably about five. What year would that be then? What year were you born? 1917. 1917. So it'd be 1922. It was wonderful to have it. Yeah. Because we didn't have any place, you know, to freeze it. How often would you need to get ice for it? Seemed like it, it lasted about, uh, about half a week. So you'd have to get ice twice a week? Yeah. They manufactured ice down on the, on the river. Oh, yeah? Harvested yeah. it? And uh, they would cut it. Mm-hmm. So you could get quite a few and save them. But my folks thought it was great. Did you always have an icebox when you were younger, or is that something your parents got at a certain point? No, it wasn't when we were real young. Yeah. Because it was when we moved down to the farm, our own farm. We lived at my grandfather's place. They didn't have it. What did you do before you had an icebox? Well, we'd put them outside. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in the wintertime. And then we had, we had dug a hole in the ground. Inside of the basement. Colder than down there than up at top. It wasn't enough to freeze it, mm-hmm. but it kept the milk cold. And then they would keep the cream. We had cans of cream and only take them into town once a week. Mm-hmm. And we'd keep them down there so they kept cool. Oh. You'd be surprised how much colder it is a few feet below you. Yeah. You know. When you first got the ice box, did that change the amount of produce your family could have? Well, I don't know. We were too diversified in our eating. Yeah. <laughs> so we only ate certain things, and uh, it really didn't make too much difference. It only had... You lived on a farm, so a lot of your food was already fresh anyways, right? Yeah. Do you remember when you first got a refrigerator? When I got married, and I, I got a refrigerator. Do you remember what your first reaction was to that? Oh, fun. <laughs> so we kept that for many years. It was good. Did you ever have ice cream before you had a fridge? Just when we brought it from town. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But once you had a refrigerator, you were able to have it at home? Oh, really? I don't think it froze that much. It just had a little freezing compartment in it. That's all the questions I had. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) 
So after everything we've learned with Andy's refrigeration project and researching the history, Brian went out and found Tom Jackson. Tom Jackson wrote the book Chilled, How Refrigeration Changed the World and Might Do So Again. So I was tasked to investigate how the modern refrigerator came to be. And when I started investigating this, I was thinking about who could I interview for this? Maybe like a refrigerator repair person or a scientist. And so I was a little concerned that this was going to take a little bit of time to uh, find the right people. But 30 seconds later, I came across Tom's book on Amazon and I was like, this guy is perfect. So I totally lucked out on that. I lucked out a second time when I emailed him and got a response right back saying that he was willing to talk with me. So I gave him a call up on Skype and we had a chat. I'm Tom Jackson. I'm the author of Chilled, How Refrigeration Changed the World and Might Do So Again. I'm a science writer. I've been writing uh, non-fiction books for the last 20 years. What started your interest in writing a book about refrigeration? I started to think about how ubiquitous they are. We've all got one, but how ignored they are as well in that no one really understands how they work. And the story of how we found out how they work or how we designed them to do their job is quite an epic one and it sort of underlies and sort of runs alongside uh, how we figured out all sorts of other areas of science. And so it began there and then when I started to think about it, it goes off in all sorts of different directions. Refrigeration, the technology not only arose out of the knowledge in thermodynamics and basic physics and atomic physics that was put together in the last two or three hundred years. That technology is not just used for food, but it's used all over the place and all sorts of other things. So there's some quite surprising things. So Tom, give me a quick overview of how a refrigerator works. A refrigerator works using what's called the zeroth law of thermodynamics. Um, There are three other laws uh, which were defined before this one, but this one wasn't called the fourth, it was called the zeroth because it's so sort of fundamental and obvious that no one actually thought about defining it as a law. But it says that two systems, a hot thing and a cold thing, will reach thermal equilibrium, uh, meaning that the, the heat from the hot thing will always spread out in the direction of into the cold thing. Uh, in the same way that water flows from a high place to a low place and they end up, uh, it finds its level, same as, same as heat. In fact, uh, early scientists thought that heat was an invisible liquid that flowed around, you know, a very gooey liquid which sort of flowed through everything. So the zero flora thermodynamics, which is, which is what's happening in the food compartment of your fridge, the, the food in your food compartment, although it's pretty cold, uh, it's still warmer than the fluid inside the back of the fridge. And so its heat flows into that colder area, thus becomes even colder or more likely stays the same temperature because obviously heat is leaking in from outside anyway. So Brian, what were the most interesting things that Tom taught you about refrigerators? When I set out to talk with him, I really thought that the main point was going to find out like when did refrigerators start like finding their ways in the home. I knew that before modern refrigerators, people had icebox in their homes. So I kind of thought that the main storyline was going to be, how did we go from that to the modern day refrigerator? Thinking that probably like around the 50s, uh, somebody invented the components to make that happen. So I thought it was going to be fairly straightforward, but little did I know it really turned into 
a huge world around refrigeration that I didn't expect at all. For a million years, humans have been burning stuff, making stuff hot for more than a million years, probably. They've had fire, they've had heat under their control. But for a long time, people thought they were two different things. They thought heat was different to cold. They thought that, you know, things got hot because they were full of heat. Things got cold because they were full of cold. But the story of science tells us that around the, uh, the 1850s, through several sources of information, several sort of lines of inquiry, that the hot and cold are really manifestations of motion of atoms. And when they move around quickly, we, we regard that as them getting hot. And when they slow down, they get cold. And so uh, it's the relationship between volume, temperature and pressure. So when you squeeze things, they tend to get warm. And if you stretch them, if you give them a larger space to fill, this is a gas. If you, get a, if you, if you give a, a gas a larger space to fill, its pressure will go down, but its temperature will stay the same. Now, you can, if you play with that idea, you end up being able to create cold. What a fridge is doing, it's got, so, it's got a gas or it's got, a, it's got a fluid, a liquid, that it squirts through a tiny hole, pumps through a very tiny hole, and that allows this fluid, effectively in physics, a fluid and a liquid are the same thing. Let's not get into, you know, they're obviously different to us, but they're behaving in, in, a, in a set of ways, which they, so they can be regarded as pretty much the same sort of thing. And so you're squirting this liquid through a very tiny hole, and it gives it the opportunity to spread out really fast and fill this new space very, very quickly. And in so doing, it has to give up some of its energy. And so the, the, the atoms and molecules within this gas slow down. That means they get cold. So using a pump, series, and basically a loop of pipe and a very small hole, you can um, uh, reduce the temperature of a gas and then make things cold. As we all know, hot things go cold and cold things get hot. Uh, you never hold a cup of coffee in your hand and then it to get warmer and warmer and warmer. Eventually, it would just, it, you know, it's, it's, it's heat spreads out. So that hot thing, uh, heat always goes from a concentration of high temperature into areas where there's low temperature. So the same thing's happening in the fridge. It's just that even though the fridge is colder than the rest of your house, it's still warmer, the inside of your fridge, the food compartment or the freezer compartment is still warmer than this gas is circulating behind it that's just been squirted through this nozzle. And so that acts as a heat sink, the cold gas. And so the warmth of your food spreads out, leaves your food, goes into um, into this gas, which is then pumped away and given the opportunity to shed that heat out the back. And that's why the back of the fridge is warm and the inside's cold. It sounds like that the heat is actually being sucked out rather than cold air being pushed in is that correct that's that's right exactly yes so it's so the reason why your ice cream stays frozen is exactly the same reason why the pot of coffee gets cold the reason why the ice cream stays frozen is because it is warmer than its surroundings so there's a constant pumping of heat I mean, you can call it sucking or pumping. I mean, the, the, you know, the two are the same thing, really. Uh, and obviously, the energy for that is the electricity coming in. It runs the pump, creates the expansion, and then recompresses. So it's expansion and compression, expansion and compression. But it's just this loop of liquid uh, that's being expanded into a gas and then compressed back into a liquid over and over and over again. And that, that idea was um, first uh, formulated properly for the purpose of refrigeration just over 200 years ago um, by an American in uh, Philadelphia called Oliver Evans. He was like this prolific 
he was like the Elon Musk of his day, except he wasn't a billionaire. And it was a bit harder to monetize your inventions. But he, he just made all sorts of inventions all the time. He, um, he was a crucial figure in the development of the United States after the, the Revolutionary Wars. So in, the, in those 20, 30 years, he was building roads and helping, you know, sort in part of the industrial strategy. Um, and sorting out the milling, and he was doing all sorts of stuff. He's quite a quite a, an amazing guy. And then, you know, just in the back of one of his books, he he wrote down like a design for a fridge. Didn't ever build one. <laughs> he didn't. Th- he didn't uh, regard it as all that important. Uh, about twenty five years later, his apprentice went off to the UK and started to. He why well, he actually patented it, Jacob Perkins, and and then the story sort of begins there, on the, which eventually ends up with the fridges that we have in our in our homes today. But it takes a, there's a fair bit happening in between. So we've heard about the industrialists who are using ice and shipping ice to keep things cold and to get ice and gold, get the cold to places that didn't have them. But at the same time, there were industrialists and people who were inventing these huge compression and evaporation systems to do the same thing, but more artificially. By the 1830s, Jacob Perkins and then a few others are beginning to build I mean, they're ice machines to start with. No one has the idea of building a refrigerator. It's just a, a sort of artificial ice maker. But they don't work very well. It's a lot easier just to go and get ice from frozen lakes of New England and, and Scandinavia in winter. So the natural ice industry just takes over and runs to the 1920s, probably longer, but certainly they had no real competition until around the 1920s from uh, artificial cold. And there's also trust at the aspect of people didn't trust the, the technology it didn't it, it wasn't very reliable it ex, it exploded it killed you there's there's a whole host of stories of disaster where they freeze entire ships worth of meat and off they go and then they haven't even left port and the the, the refrigeration system breaks and all the meat goes rotten and uh, it was much better just to use ice so it took a long time to develop a refrigerator that people trusted that and it worked and was safe i think that's that's what's interesting is that even though this technology existed and people kind of knew in theory how to create these systems, that the reason why it didn't make it into the home for, you know, up to 100 years was pretty much the safety issue. Yeah. And then even once it got into the home, there were even more health risks. That's right. One of the big hurdles for domestic refrigeration in the 1920s and 30s because the refrigerant fluid that was going around the insides was often sulfur dioxide, which is odorless and poisonous. Um, you have to choose a you have to choose a gas that does very well when it's being compressed and expanded. It needs to take in a lot of heat. So something like water, which is obviously harmless, doesn't doesn't work quite as well as it could do. So fridges could kill you, and frequent not not frequently, but more often than people obviously thought was acceptable. A fridge would leak and the whole family would get poisoned in their sleep. You know, that's what, that sort of thing was happening. Holy cow. But, yeah, exactly. So they invented Freon as a harmless but effective alternative. And it's DuPont who put it together. And specifically a guy called Thomas Midgley, a chemist at DuPont, who I think the year before or the year after, having developed Freon, also invented leaded petrol. So this, this one guy... <laughs> When it came to uh, clumsy chemical catastrophes, 
this one guy did quite a lot. So, you know, the whole loaded, the whole loaded gas, gasoline problem uh, was from him. And uh, Freons, which are, the, the, the idea behind them is that they have very, very powerful, uh, they're chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs is the perhaps more familiar name for them, uh, made of chlorine and fluorine, which are two very reactive elements. And the idea is that once you get them to react with each other, they'll stay stuck to each other and won't do anything else. They won't break up and attack anything else, which, of course, by uh, in the early 70s, it was Molina discovered that actually up in the high atmosphere, the, the high energy ultraviolet light bashes open these chemicals, releasing chlorine into, into the air, and then it just wreaks havoc with the ozone and uh, causes the ozone hole. And it's also a, car, a very, very effective greenhouse gas. So Freon was there to make um, fridges safer and and more effective, and then it ends up creating one of the biggest you know, man-made, human-made problems in the natural world that we've seen. The ozone hole, I think we've kind of fixed it, as long as people um, obey the rules, I think. But the, uh, the stuff that we put in to replace chlorofluorocarbons, to replace Freon's, still has it's still a very much a greenhouse gas so if you just throw your refrigerator in onto the the town tip and leave it all this gas will leak out into the atmosphere and it you know it's pretty devastating stuff a small volume of it will have a very large impact when it comes to climate change when you compare it to the other you know the more familiar greenhouse gases like like methane and and carbon dioxide so we haven't quite solved that problem the freon problem but we're you know halfway there the other amazing thing was when we first kind of approached this idea, we really just thought about the singular refrigerator in your house and how much that has changed our life. And I think that what's, what really makes the refrigerator an amazing invention is really not the one appliance sitting in your house. It's the whole distribution system that has been set up around it. Tom calls this the cold chain. The cold chain as it stands now is, a, is a, an incredible feat of organization in that every item of food, be it a fish trawled up from the ocean or a fruit traveling from California to the Midwest or a kiwi fruit coming from New Zealand, will be transported in a container or some other form at exactly the right temperature or every step of its journey, there'll be a and they'll know exactly what temperature is right for that product. And just like any network, there are incredibly busy trunk routes. And then you can imagine it branching out in all different ways as it spreads out until it arrives at your local grocery store. And then the last point on the, the cold chain is when you go to the store, load up your car with your things and go and put them in your fridge. And that's the last, the last node of this uh, awesome global temperature controlled network. A lot of that network is refrigerated. So below freezing or same sort of temperatures as are in your fridge. Uh, or they might be slightly warmer than that. So the thing that really blew my mind was when he talked about the same concept that, work, that works with refrigerators works with uh, air conditioning, works with all sorts of different things in our day-to-day -day life that regard cooling and cooling things down. And this can even go to the devices in your computer that keep your computer cool. 
And then this even goes to um, you know the server farms that at Google and Facebook and all these and Amazon, these huge companies that have had to build these gigantic server farms that one of their biggest pr challenges with this, well, the two challenges, electricity and heat. So these companies have invented these amazing refrigeration uh, ideas. Some of these server farms have been, they've like submerged them in oil to, to dissipate the heat. And they've even built some of these server farms like up in the Arctic Circle so that, you know, it can naturally keep cold. I, I was amazed at how much we rely on refrigeration outside of the food arena. Uh, we've talked a lot about food here, but using the ability to uh, refrigerate, to make things cold, has been a very important tool in science and is very important in all sorts of uh, technology, some quite sort of uh, exciting like computing and space travel. But again, also the first H-bombs were was a big fridge. That's something that's quite heartening. <laughs> um, <laughs> um but also relatively mundane things like artificial fabrics and construction technology relies on on refrigeration. So it was all it was finding out that sort of stuff and just thinking, wow, this this invention, this ability, had a huge effect. The effect on how we our relationship to food, what we eat, when we eat, is just immense. I mean that that's a, another book again. I mean I don't focus enormously on that. I could have done. Other people have. That in itself is just a huge subject, but really it's a, just one of, of many ways that refrigeration has changed our society. It's up there with the, the silicon chip and it's up there with writing and the wheel. It really is one of the, in the, in the top, well, I've, I've given you four, top four, <laughs> maybe top 10, I don't know, but yeah, it, it's up there as an invention alongside all those ones. I had no idea, like, how important refrigeration technology was. Like, I didn't understand that there's pharmaceutical implications. Like, basically any development in, in pharmaceuticals requires refrigeration because it's controlling all these different chemicals. Um, and then electronics and developing, I mean, not just keeping elements cool enough so they don't overheat, but also in wiring and all these crazy things. Then also in weapons. He talked about the H-bomb being a... Uh, refrigerator. In the last chapter of his book, he talks about even more like implications of refrigeration technology and almost how there's so many things that are just little refrigerators, except we don't even think about it. Yeah. Yeah. It really brought to light that this is, you know, the technology behind the refrigerator is technology that that we use in so many other areas. And I think that's where you can go down the rabbit hole because, uh, there, there are so many different ways to cool something down, and the scientists, like the scientific community, they're using crazy things like lasers to cool down. I mean, you, the Hadron Collider, that has a huge cooling system, which uses, I think it's more magnetic. And that's what's amazing about Tom's book, is at the end of the book, he starts going into how scientists are freezing atoms at... They're getting them so cold that these atoms are turning into something completely new. I did ask Tom that if he thought that on the consumer level, the technology behind the refrigerator was going to change anytime soon. And this is what he said. The domestic refrigerator is pretty efficient. I don't see it changing that much. I mean, all the, all the, the innovation is to do with controlling the conditions inside. So certain cultures really want to have uh, the ability to control the temperature and the humidity 
especially in East Asia, where they ferment foods inside fridges. Uh, they So there's that happening. And also there's the smart fridge that, you know, is an AI fridge. It's a, the vision of the future that we've, we've all been talking about for so long, uh, where it knows how much milk you've got and whether your favorite ice cream is running low and stuff. The logistics of such a device, I can't see how it would be any easier than just looking in the fridge and finding out what you need. But they do, they are making them. <laughs> but how does it work? Do you scan it as it goes in, you know, with the barcode or, and you have to leave it in a certain place where it can weigh each item? It's just, I haven't looked into it. I'm too much of a cynic to think anyone's going to bother with that. But who knows? Our children will probably have smart fridges in every room. Um, but when it comes to the new forms of refrigeration, the actual new processes that uh, aren't the expansion and compression process that we talked about yeah there's there are some sort of pretty high-tech ways of doing it but i don't see that being used in the domestic arena uh what they'll be used for is cold as a my book does go into this and it, the, the subtitle is how refrigeration changed the world and might do so again so once i finish talking about the the, the fridge and the cold chain and how it's impacted on food and go into how cold is used as a a scientific probe so superconductors and superfluids and all these strange quantum effects were discovered and explored by taking materials down to very very low temperatures down towards zero kelvin towards it's minus 400 and something fahrenheit i can't remember 420 something fahrenheit so it's extremely cold so that's zero kelvin outer, outer space is four kelvins there are devices that use uh, magnetic cooling, laser cooling, and similar sorts of things, a, a whole range of different th- different techniques to go down below four degrees Kelvin. So actually, they're the, the coldest things in the universe. So we are actually taking them to temperatures that have never existed before. And once you go down to very close to absolute zero, helium and mercury and they, all these other chemicals do start, start doing for very strange things. Um, well, that interests me as well, because that opens the door to things like immortality <laughs> wow. and, and teleportation and quantum computing and that sort of area. So not food at all, but uh, I'm not an expert on quantum computing, and there are all sorts of different designs being tested, but I haven't seen one that doesn't require it to be extremely cold mm-hmm. uh, inside the heart of the device where the the amazing gizmo is doing whatever it's doing. So again, you know, the computers which are going to be anywhere near as powerful as the human mind are going to be fridges. This opened up a whole new world of, of other topics that we can talk about with regards to the way that we refrigerate our homes and our businesses to new types of cooling technology, to the ways that we are developing cooling technology for our devices. So uh, I'm really interested to kind of continue to dig deep into other ways that we're using the laws of thermodynamics to make our lives easier and better. And I love this book. I really recommend anybody who's interested. It's not about refrigerators. It's really about so much more. Uh, So it's an interesting read. I really recommend it. Yeah, I picked it up too. I started reading and I I can't put it down. (laughs) It's so fascinating. I highly recommend checking out Tom Jackson's work. You can find him by Googling Tom Jackson, science writer. Chilled, How Refrigeration Changed the World and Might Do So Again is an awesome book that we talked a bunch about today. I highly recommend it. It's really fascinating. I'm still reading through it. 
Also check out his new book, Psychology, an illustrated history of the mind from hypnotism to brain scans. Before I let you go, I do want to close the loop on the soda in the freezer trick. After doing the research for this episode and what we learned from Tom, what seems to be happening is that because the modern refrigerator and freezer is a sort of vacuum with the molecules compressing and decompressing and pushing through that cycle in the freezer, what happens is because there's more evaporation happening and because more of that heat is getting sucked out of the can and the paper towel, it, it's causing it to cool down faster. So there's really fascinating articles and debates online if you're really super curious, but it does take around 15 minutes for full results and after 30, sometimes the drinks explode. So be careful. Anyways, thanks again for listening. We look forward to next time. Thanks to the team and Studio 71 for making this possible. Thank you also to Tom Jackson for sharing his knowledge and writing a really awesome book about how the refrigerator is probably history's greatest invention. If you haven't already, please subscribe and tell all your friends about the podcast. We'd love to hear from you too. You can shoot us an email at podcast at makeeverything.tv. And for more resources and show notes, you can check out our website, makeeverything.tv slash simplycomplex. We have a blog there where we post all of the show notes and more details, and we'll have more stuff from Tom on there as well. If you liked the episode today, please leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. We'd really appreciate it. It helps get the word out. Thanks. See you next time.